I buy for cash flow no matter what. In other words, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, okay, worst case scenario, can I keep this house up? And how would I do that if I'm going to flip it? This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Tamara Aragon. Tamara is a real estate investor, trainer, and coach in California. Tamara started investing in Stockton, California in 2003, and from that time has done over 500 flips. In this episode, Tamara will tell us how she got started with real estate investing, how lease options work, and how you can become a successful real estate investor as well. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, Download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Tamara, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. My name is Tamara Aragon, and I am a real estate investor, trainer, and coach here in Stockton, California. Awesome. And how did you get into real estate investing? Okay, so a lot of people ask me how I got started. I'll just say that I wasn't born with like a silver spoon in my mouth. People just didn't, hey, here, go do this. You know, just to give you a little uh, heads up, right? Because people may not know, but I've done 500 plus flips since 2003. And prior to that, I owned a company starting at age 20. And I'm in my heading over the hill late 50s right now. So I've been doing uh, entrepreneurship for a very long time. But what happened was I was in college you know, and don't worry, I'm not going to give you my, this is the 10 minute version. And I went to school to get an AA. And I just decided a long time ago, and this started probably when I was 10, I would take a little red wagon around and go door to door with light bulbs. And I figured out that I could double my money, right? Sell a light bulb for a dime and make 20 cents or whatever it was. And so from that point forward, I just kind of knew that I didn't really want to work for other people. I always did things on my own did work for other people during college to put myself through. But when I got through my AA and I was in the summer and expecting to go back to college, I got an opportunity to work at a retail location. My degree was in merchandising in San Francisco, actually, Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, your neck of the woods, Sean. And I hated it. Working nights and weekends, I got moved up really quickly into a management position. And while I was going to college, I had saved $2,500 knowing I was going to do something with that. And so I decided that I didn't want to do those high fashion stores. There was 5 million of them. You know, you go to San Francisco, you see, you know, Nordstrom's, you know, huge stores everywhere. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be a good idea if I made clothes for old people or found a place, a way to, to service them? So I did what I want to recommend all entrepreneurs to do, a little market research. At that time, it, it was a handwritten letter stuck in an envelope with a stamp that went to the nursing home and said, hey, whoever buys clothes there, I'm going to be calling to find out who that is and see if there's a need for someone to bring them clothes in nursing homes. 
So I did make those calls, found out they've been going out and it was a lot of work and struggle. And I said, well, what if I could bring the clothes to you? Would that make it easier? So clothes to you was born and sort of. Uh, so I went and got a rack of clothes. My uncle was selling this big UPS style truck. And here I was, this little 20-year-old in this big old truck with, uh, I went and figured out to get a rack of clothes and pulled it in there, scheduled my first appointment at a nursing home on a Thursday night, I remember it was, when I didn't have to work at the mall. So I drove to that appointment and in an hour I sold $500. So at that time in the 80s, $500 in an hour was really exciting. I was like, wow, this is it. So the next day I gave my notice. Uh, I was off and running. That business ran for about 10 years. I got my family working for me at multiple trucks, ended up doing catalog business and, and stuff like that. But then a terrible thing happened. The government came in and said that they didn't want the nursing homes handling their own money for the elderly anymore. So that you know was an evolution, but I tried to make it work. It didn't work. So I was out of business. So my firstborn died. And that was a pretty devastating time. And it happened to be right when there was a market turn. In the meantime, I had built up a pretty good life. I got married. I had a little boy. I was living on some acreage. I always tell people I used to flip horses instead of houses. So I was, I had like 17 Arabian horses, my dream. So I was living the dream until I wasn't. And this was the beginning of the decline. So I don't know if you've ever heard those gurus stand up on stage and tell you all the horrible things that happened to them. Well, it all happened to me just like this. So at that same time, the market turned that I lost my business. My husband at the time was in contractor. So his business declined. That kind of stress causes divorce, which is what happened. Then there was foreclosure. There was bankruptcy. Then my mom ended up getting cancer that same time period. And she ended up passing away. It was a really, really, really hard time. It was a time, though, that I found that a lot of times we have the drive, but I never had anybody really telling me how to do it because I was young and thought I could do it without anybody. I was pretty haughty at the time. And then when I just thought things couldn't get any worse, I was involved in a car accident. That put me in bed for quite a long time. And during that time, though, I was given a lot of time to really be, and believe it or not, I still figured out ways to run a business from my bedside, but really gave a, some real good introspection about growth and personal growth. So I started reaching out and I was on a trip to visit family in an airport and I looked on the shelf and on the shelf was a book and it just kind of yelled by me and it was called One Minute Millionaire. And it was written by Robert Allen and Mark Victor Hansen. And at that time, this whole thing about cash flow quadrants and multiple streams of income, which people talk about today, wasn't was new to me. I had never heard of it. And then this book just really was like, it gave me hope again. Like, I know what I did wrong now. I put it all in one basket and I didn't get coaching and training. Well, right around that time, lo and behold, Bob and Mark were right up the road in Los Angeles. I drove up there and watched them for the free seminar. And the free seminar, of course, ended up offering, this is all new to me. I had not been a part of anything like this before, 5000 a 20000 and a $80,000 coaching program or something like that. And I raised my hand for the $5,000 coaching program because that's the best I could stretch myself at the time. But I didn't even really have money for that. I, I'm like walking back to the table thinking, what did I just do? I just said yes. Now I'm embarrassed because I'm going to have to tell them no. But... I thought about it and I decided to ask a friend for help. I asked them if I could put this $5,000 on that I knew they could, they had 
on their credit card and I would pay them 10% interest on top of their interest. If they would just have a little faith with me, they had no problem doing that. They knew I was the kind of gal that was going to work at McDonald's if I had to, to pay that bill back. But yay, I didn't have to work at McDonald's. Went through the coaching and it took 11 months for my first big deal. So now let's talk about that. That first big deal took 11 months though, because the kind of coaching I had was group coaching. They didn't give you contracts. There was no one to call when I really had needed help. You know, I can get on these group coaching calls and ask generic questions, but it was really difficult to get the kind of help that I thought I needed. So I figured it out though. I hand wrote letters again. This was back, you know, a long time ago. It was in 2003 actually. And I sent them to people in pre-foreclosure and I was knocking on doors. I was doing all the stuff they were telling me to do. And finally, somebody called me back from one of those letters. And he said he had held on to the letter because I had a little cross at the bottom of it that said, I'm praying for you. So I, you know, everybody's got their thing. I, you know, I like to pray for people. So I <laughs> decided to put that on my foreclosure letter. So he held on to it and said that was the reason he called. And he appreciated that encouragement and was ready to sell. That dream call we all want to get ready to sell. Only thing is, I'm like, oh, no like maybe some new people might be thinking when that call comes now, what am I going to do now? So I did what I thought I was taught to do as I found a realtor's contract because I didn't even have a contract, filled in the numbers based on whatever I could figure out. The tax records at the time told me the property was worth, got all ready, knocked on that door. Guy answered the door, creaked open and really strong smell of cat urine, graffiti on the wall. It was really dark in there. It's like he didn't even have his electricity on. Uh, invited me in and sat on a box in the middle of the room. I mean, literally didn't even have furniture. He was so sad. It was sad. We sat down and I asked the magic question, the question everyone should always ask a seller when they sit down to buy a house. And that is, what do you want? Right? The magic question that people sometimes forget to ask. And his answer was, I want $20,000 over the mortgage that I have. Well, I went to tax records, so I kind of had an idea. I confirmed where he was at and what he thought and what I thought. And so we came up with a price. I said, great, I could do that. So signed the contracts together right there in that dark, smelly place. Then he stood up, hands me the key to the car in the driveway, says it's not running, but you can have that too. Hands me the key to his house, says, call me when I can pick up my check and walks out of that house, leaving me standing there in this dark house. Back into going, I'm having flashbacks of Mark Victor Hansen and Robert Allen. I just committed only like a thousand times worse to a house that I had no money to buy and had no idea how I was going to do it. But Tamara did what Tamara does and pulled her friends together and a few people that didn't require me to pay them up front to clean up the house and donated the car and, you know, did some things. But what I did wrong is I did all that before I owned it. So I did a couple of things that I want to recommend everyone listening don't do. Happened to work out for me, but I wouldn't recommend it. I stuck the contract in title. That's smart. Didn't put a dollar on it. That wasn't smart. I did fill out. I did work on the property and got it fixed up. And while I was doing that, I put a for sale by owner sign on the front of the house. So no one had taught me this strategy, but I figured out that when somebody did want to buy the house very quickly at the time, the market was just starting to go up. Thank goodness for me. People that wanted to buy it, put we did a con again. I just found my realtor's contract and got it in contract, put that in title. And then I asked the title company, well, can they buy it? And then I'll just take the difference. Can I use their money? That now I know is called a double closing for those that don't know. I didn't know what I was doing, but it worked. So after all of that said and done, 
I have an $80,000 profit, a check. Let me just rephrase that check and a $67,000 profit on my very first real estate flip. Yay. Awesome. So what I did right was I kept my can do spirit. I kept finding solutions. I kept reaching for help. I did the best I could with the knowledge I had and I didn't give up. You know, I mentioned some things that legally, you know, logistically, probably I got lucky. I mean, what if the guy came back and wanted the house while I was fixing it up or something, but it didn't work that way. So that's my first deal. That was it. I was also doing a little job at that time. I immediately gave my notice for the second time and I've been doing real estate investing ever since doing about five a month right now. And I know everybody says California's hard. I'm doing fine. I'm in Stockton, California, and I'm doing fine. That's an awesome story. Um, can I go over some details about it? That'd be awesome. Awesome. So I was wondering at the time when you had 11 months of basically just hope, right? Like nothing was really working at the time. How did you persevere? And like, how many letters were you actually sending out during that time frame? Well, it's funny you ask, because I do remember it was at a time there wasn't that many pre-foreclosures. There was about 20. It really wasn't that many because I was handwriting, I remember in those days and making copies and then handwriting and hand putting them in a thing. And then I would knock on doors as many, all those same people who would yell at me a lot and probably not saying all the right things. And I was working a job at the time. Okay. So basically you're only going for those pre-foreclosures. Yeah. That's all I was going for at the time. Okay. And you just faced the rejection. I did bandit signs. Okay, cool. And yeah, the whole time, 11 months, you're just like getting rejections, you're getting calls from people basically cursing you out and you just persevere through it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We had a couple of maybes and some conversations, but no contracts. You know, I tried to give offers, but you know, one of the things I always teach people now that I work with other investors is uh, give a contract to everyone. I mean, even no matter how far off you think you are, just do it. Well, you know, here's a contract. It's not anywhere near what you're thinking you want, but I just want you to know I'm serious about buying your property. If you want to reconsider, here's my offer. Now that comes a lot of times by email in addition to a, you know, a conversation, but definitely want to enough mud against the wall. And I probably wasn't doing enough of that. Mm -hmm. At the time, were you just sending it to people within Stockton or is it across California? San Joaquin County. Okay. I did do San Joaquin County, but of course, you know, now I'm doing outside of that and have properties all over the United States. But at the time I was focusing on the county, my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that you made a mistake when you didn't put a dollar into the contract. What was the mistake in that? The contract really isn't valid without a dollar on it. There's got to be the consideration that you've promised. And I promised a dollar. Okay. So now do you, when you do contracts? Do you just do that as well? Yeah, I don't put a dollar. I usually put 500, a thousand. Yeah, no, I put money. I know that contract can walk. It's not a valid binding contract without that money. So tell us a story after your first deal. So that was back in 2003, maybe 2004. What happened now? Well, we kept going and I actually hooked myself up with people kept saying we found a few more deals after that. And a lot of people around us are like asking us, Howard had a friend, Michelle and I, who started uh, doing this, some of this together, which was fun. It was fun to bring her in and do it with somebody. So we bought another house and then I ended up doing a lease option on that one made some more mistakes. What I found is a lot of people, in fact, ask when I'm, when they're in pre-foreclosure, if they could stay in the house and one of our mistakes. And some people still say, yes, I don't recommend that. There people are really married to their house and then you start making money and you start reselling and they're kind of frustrated. They lost everything. That became a problem on my second house, ended up working out and still profiting, but it was a problem. And then we decided to get involved with some builders. Once we found out that we could get into contract with just a thousand dollars, 
you know, now we had a little money to play with. So we started talking to builders at the time. The market started booming. There was a lot of builders. So I asked if I could get in on five or 10 houses at $1,000 each and then hold them while they were being built. And then when they got built out, I would sell that contract. It's called assigning the contract wholesaling. Everything everybody told me was illegal at the time. It wasn't illegal, <laughs> but I'm glad that everybody else thought it was because it wasn't very much competition at the time. I went all the way to the California Association of Realtors, National Board of Realtors. I made sure because everybody was telling me what I was doing was illegal. Nope, I can sell a contract. Can't be a realtor, can't sell a house. So what I would do is I'd get the builder on and let them do the selling so people could buy. So I started having what I was, that's what I started doing is I started putting little internet shows on and asking people to invite others. And that's where I started my online presence that I now have. I got a better coach. I just, you know, highly recommend getting people that know what they're doing. Why reinvent the wheel, find out somebody that's doing it successful and just copy them. People are always trying to reinvent the wheel, watch YouTube videos and get what I call just enough to be dangerous and fearful and then they don't go and they don't succeed and they wonder why. So the, one of the ways that I got started in on online was uh, this is at a time when, you know, how we have video a lot now, but at the time it was all audio tele seminars. <laughs> and there was a guy who said he can get us to do uh, $20,000 in a month. So, hey, the challenge was given. So we did it. So we started sending, uh, again, back to what I did when I first started my first business. I started messaging every guru I knew that didn't know me. And then they didn't answer. I messaged again. And when they didn't answer, I messaged again, meaning email, whatever they had on their website, or now we have internet by this time, wherever I could find them until they told me to go away and go away. Well, they didn't. And in fact, I still have a website called Massive Profits in Foreclosures. It's online. It's an ugly 80s looking site or 90s or I guess it was 2000, but it's really reminds me of 80s. It's still up and I still sell off that site. So what I did was I asked them if I could interview them. And if I was going to interview them, all I needed was my first one. Once the first one said yes, then I got to name drop. I was going to interview them and I'm going to send out emails inviting everybody to listen. And then I'm going to sell a product and I'm going to give them half my money for any leads that they brought in. So that's how I got massive profits in foreclosures. If you go there and look at all the people on that page that you might recognize from back in the day, they all let me interview them. And then I created a course from that. So I made, I sold it for $197 and we ended up getting, well, whatever that turns out to be, we made over $20,000 before we even recorded the first telesum, before we even recorded the first call. Awesome. Isn't that cool? But see, I wouldn't have known to do that. So you need a coach. I wouldn't have known to do any of that or how people got started. Then I was all sold on the internet too. Right. So now I've got lots of internet presence at the same time that I do my, and do some speaking and coaching at the same time that I do my real estate investing. I have five crews for rehabs here in the Valley, which is Stanislaus, Sacramento, San Joaquin County, and all the way up to Fresno. Pretty much you live in the area. So I can say to you, the 99 thoroughfare. Mm-hmm is where I focus. Then outside of that, I don't need to go too far outside of that. My, I do a lot of direct mail marketing here. Okay. So you say uh, maybe is your business split 50-50 between real estate investing and your online presence? No more like 75 real estate, 25 online as far as income goes. Okay. My income comes from real estate. Yeah. And do you focus more on like the buy and hold side or do you do more of the fix and flip type uh, investing? I'm a flipper. Somebody asked me, I have 17, I have held, I have. 
right now. But somebody asked me, actually I have 18. I just bought another triplex here in Stockton. But somebody asked me, why do you buy, why would you ever not buy and hold? You know, why flip? And I'm like, well, let me just ask you this, mister who holds, if somebody said to you, I'm going to give you $20,000 to sell you that property, that how long does it take you to earn that 20,000, let's say on a single family home, on a rental? How much do you get every month over and above your you know, investment and mortgage? Because most people don't like to type their cash. You know, and you might make 200, 300. Well, how long is it going to take you to make $20,000? And then how long? And then you got the risk of the market for when you want to sell it or when you don't. Now, long-term buy and hold, you can't go wrong if that's your goal. And that's why I do buy and hold some for my later years. But if I can get 20, you know, they say a bird in a hand is better than a <laughs> something later. So if I can get 20,000 now for something I buy, that's a flip. Why would I hold it? Yeah. And so, so there's different exit strategies. Exactly. You know, you just got to property and decide. I have some friends who invest here in the Bay Area and they're saying, you know, the appreciation here, we can make like a million dollars if you just buy in Los Altos. How many rental properties in the Midwest do you need to buy to make a million dollars from your rental cash flow? So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, that's absolutely true. Bay Area is an anomaly out Los Angeles. I mean, there's some anomalies in the United States that if you can actually get your hands on something that is cash flowing, that's very difficult. I don't know if you found properties that are cash flowing well right now. And then the landlord laws are so crazy in the Bay Area right now that, you know, you have to pay someone. Recently, I had a property, $25,000 just to make them leave. Exactly. It's my house and I can't just give them notice now. I have to pay them to leave. So it's just a lot more that I would like to avoid, which is why I'm turning it over to lease options. Cool. Let's get into lease options in a little bit. Uh, before that, you started real estate investing in 2003. You did the whole like flipping in Stockton and you did the um, like- Still am. Right. And you purchased properties that were under construction and then you wholesold those contracts. How did 2008 affect you and your business? Horrible. I actually had property. My worst thing, this is why I'm not doing new builds anymore. Actually, I was in the middle of a new build in North Carolina. Here I am in California. And the guy goes bankrupt. That was horrible. I can't tell you the amount of money I had on that, which guess what that did to me? <laughs> yeah, it was a very, very difficult time. Um, now my flips here in Stockton and Stanislaus and Sacramento, I've never lost. I've never lost here. I buy for cash flow no matter what. In other words, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, okay, worst case scenario, can I keep this house up? And how would I do that if I'm going to flip it? You know, my goal is to flip in used to be two to three months. Now it's four to five months because that's the market we're in or even six. It's taking a little longer to sell houses right now. So, which is why I'm turning to lease options. So basically we're just saying this, you, when you purchase the property, you always have like a second exit strategy in the back of your head. Like if I can't sell the flip, I can hold it and it will cash flow because of the rentals. Exactly. And that's why I didn't have any of those problems with these properties here in 2008. Now that area where I was stretching myself, getting involved with building and development is where I got hurt. Yeah, that makes sense. And I buy very conservatively. I buy, I, mean, I buy in my head. I don't buy because, you know, I really like the pretty pink whatever, <laughs> you know, the nice neighborhood. In fact, I buy in horrible neighborhoods. It doesn't matter to me. It matters to me that the comps show it to be a good deal. Right. Can you give us an example of a deal in your area right now? I got a couple. I got one in South Stockton. I bought it for 175, I think, on Lafayette in Stockton. 
I put about $25,000 in remodel in it, which is a pretty big remodel for that little house of 900 square feet. And it's on the market right now for $239. Awesome. Yeah. So my goal is 20% profit on all my deals. That's my profit margin. And are you acquiring them with just pure cash plays or are you using hard money as well to leverage? Again, because I've been doing this a while, I had a lot of people come at me. You know, I really want to learn the business. Can I just give you my money? Don't you love when people say that? So I have millions of my own and millions of other people's money and it flows. And I have a deal where I split the profits, which is really excellent, amazing return because you think about stocks, let's say, or something else where you might get seven to 10%. Well, I'm doing per house. So if I could take their money and flip two or three houses, they're making like 30% a year on the money they're letting me play with. And plus it's more liquid because at the end of every flip, I ask them, do you want your money back? Any portion of the money back? Do you want to let it ride? So, and it's not something I'm doing officially because I'm not a licensed investment person to do that. So these are friends and family that are just doing that kind of thing with me. So some of it's my money, some of it's that. I do hard money, it's just a little expensive and then it eats into my profit. So I, I bet I have someone in the Bay Area who's great and is there if I need them. Perfect. And you mentioned that you have some crews who do their jobs for you. Are they like your own employees or do you just have like several John contractors you have to work with on a regular basis? Several contracting companies that work for other people as well. But because I have a lot of the stuff going on, they're, they're usually jump for me pretty good, you know, if at all possible. And you don't want to just, that's a recommendation. Don't just get one crew because, you know. I call it a full-time babysitting service. I have two employees in my office and a lot of virtual people that work with doing different things. But yeah, I need to have somebody on those properties every day saying hello to the contractors and making sure they're on task. Yeah, that makes sense. How are you going about getting new contracting teams? I haven't really needed. I've had the same five individual people for about six years now. So, and if I did need to, but I can give you advice is I would go, honestly, this is the... You could go on my, like I have the next door app here and say, anybody, you know, you want to go off referrals, obviously, is, is what I would recommend. But also contractors tend to hang out at Home Depot, which is really annoying. But especially when you're trying to get a job done. Oh, I had to go to Home Depot for the 10th time today. But anyway, if you hang in that little area and start chatting with people, you're going to find some people that are doing work there. So yeah, that or I like my next door app referrals if I need something, but I haven't for a while. And then of course I have a lot of other investors. I have over 90 other, I get a lot of my deals. We share deals. We assign deals. We all have our different criteria. And I would ask them, Hey, is any of your crews available? I guess if I, so and I buy houses bandit sign, you can call them. Hey, you have a crew, got anybody that you like? I like that. Yeah. Cause I think working with like next door, it's kind of hard because they're usually like retail, uh, you know, retail prices. Whereas for investors, at least they know how to work with investors. Well, the next door, though, if you just say, hey, anybody in the area ever used a pretty good price painter, you know, or a pretty good price tile installer or whatever? Yeah. Then another thing that I always recommend that people can do to do a, a lot of things, you can find some good buyers, but you also can get some good conversations going down at the where they do tax sales. I've been buying on the court steps for quite a while as well. Only lately, I can't seem to get anything. The banks are way overpaying right now. So, but I do hang out there. And if you, a good recommendation for someone that, let's say they've never done a deal in their life and they're just a little nervous, go down there, just go down there. Don't be intimidating and all that. Just have some conversations. Hey, my name's John. I'm just getting started in real estate. You know, how long have you been buying down here? And 
get to know some buyers. Is it right if I, can you give me your information? And if I find a deal, can I call you? I mean, if anybody asks me that, I'm going to say, heck yeah, call me. Well, don't call me. Send it to my assistant. I have a person in my office that reviews, does the initial review on all my deals. So, Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen, I don't think I've ever been to an actual auction myself. So I definitely need to do that as well. Yeah. Oh, there you go. It's kind of fun because people are walking around all of us with our, you know, million dollars in our back pocket as we're tripping over homeless people. It's actually kind of entertaining. If you go down there, it's it's like it's so old school still. It's amazing that they've held the same way of doing auctions that we've done like 100 years standing on the street. They're standing on the street in downtown Stockton, for instance, where I'm from and where I go. And they're auctioning a house. Everybody's got to have a cashier's check in their pocket. They do it right in front of the property, right? No, right in front of the courthouse. Oh, I got it. Yeah. In fact, if you want to know where to find, I'll, I'll say here in California and, and in a couple other West Coast, I'm assuming a lot of your followers might be Northern California, propertyradar.com. It's very inexpensive to sign up to use. They give you all the times and locations of all tax sales. Cool. I definitely have to get a property radar account. Yeah. I like Property Radar because I use it even today for the, uh, it shows how much their initial mortgage is and approximately what their mortgage is today. So when I make an offer, I can kind of know where they are because you got to be above the mortgage level or it's a short sell. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And you can use that for your pre-foreclosure lead list for mailings. Mm -hmm. Is that your main source of lead generation? You're sending out direct mail still? I do about $5,000 a month in direct mail. I'm very aggressive. Very nice. Two ways I'm getting most of my deals is referrals. I get myself out there. I like talking to people like you, get myself on a podcast, talk to local people, just everybody bring me houses. I mean, if it's a deal I want it, I'll buy your wholesale deal. I'll, so yeah, I get a lot of uh, that. I won't look at anything that's wholesale without a contract in place. And I'll review the contract before I review the property because people really have crummy contracts and I won't consider that. So anybody listening on that, please get a good coach and get the right paperwork. It's a really litigious society we live in right now. You need to do contracts right. And then my next one is direct mail. I use a company and a CRM platform. Do you know what that is? Let me explain it. Podio. But it was set up by a company. And when somebody calls in on my direct mail, it goes to a recording on purpose. And it collects their phone number that goes into my Podio. Then I have VAs now. And I have over 4,500 phone numbers just in the last two years. So now I got people who got a card, had enough curiosity even if it was to call and yell at me, to call that number and whether they can leave a message or not, now I have their number and I can call them back because legally I can call them back. Do you want to explain how that works? So like they call that number and that number goes to a recording? A recording. Hi, thank you for calling. Yeah, you're all, I don't send inherited leads. If you want to know the kind of leads now I'm doing, I'm inherited landlords that have owned the property a long time and pre-foreclosure property tax lates, you know, any kind of distress situation. Landlords equity isn't necessarily distressed, but when we're on this market where we're getting ready to turn, a landlord might be thinking about it's time to sell. Or uh, you can go after, like if somebody doesn't have, like, where do I get all this? You can go to Craigslist and see who's renting property, reach out to the landlord and say, hey, have you ever thought about selling instead of renting again? Or lease option, because you can lease option their property for them and make money at it. So just to clarify, the recording, so it doesn't go to like someone doesn't pick up the phone and say, hi, blah, blah, blah. It just goes straight to recording. They leave a message and you call them back in the future. Except for my inherited leads because they've just had a, lot, a huge loss of a person. And I just think it's inappropriate. Right. For that, it's a, it comes to a Google voice number that says, hey, you reached my voicemail. If you're calling to buy or sell a house, 
you've called the right place. I look forward to talking to you. It's just a little more low key. And who follows up with these messages? Is it you personally, or do you have like a team, the virtual assistants who call it back? Oh, no way can I keep up with that. I call everybody up to eight times if they don't answer the, <laughs> until they tell scream at me to go away. So yeah, I have people calling virtual assistants. Okay. And are these virtual assistants like overseas? No, I like local. Okay, got it. Yeah, there is some uh, people that do that at $5 an hour or whatever, but I'm not sure I want the accent. And it's hard to find people that sound English in these overseas companies. At least that's been my experience. Now, I did hire Pat Live that will pick up the phone on my inherited leads in the first three rings if I'm not available. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I'm trying to create my little system because, you know, I do this interview all the time, right? So I'm trying to create my own little system. I'm trying to figure out what works and I'm having some difficulties with some minor things, but we're figuring it all out. It's part of the process. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. Yeah, that's what you got to do. So I use a company. I'm hesitant on saying the company's name on this podcast, but maybe we could talk about it after. And if you want to post it, you can. But um, I use a company that manages my list, my direct mail, my CRM system. So I don't have to send out postcards at a push. I don't do anything. The phone rings, VAs take the calls. They plug in the information in Podio. When it's a lead, I see it. And then they run my reports for me, my comps, my tax records and, you know, all that. So by the time the lead comes to me and they schedule my appointments, because I do like to be the one that makes that decision if I'm in the area to do it. I see. So you actually do, I guess your involvement in the whole process is to actually talk to the sellers and then get down to contract. Yeah. When it's coming down to that time. Yeah. And whether if I'm in town, I'll do it in person, but sometimes it's not necessary. So it just depends. And it depends on the kind of deal. It's really smart because I feel like if you do that by yourself, you can get burned out really easily, which is what a lot of newer people are doing. Yeah. And then there is a calling services that will mass dial. And every time somebody doesn't answer, it'll just go on to the next number for you. And then it'll finally ring in when there's actually a person. And yeah, so, and then there's another mass dialer you can, so, I mean, you're thinking, well, who has a problem of needing to call back that many sellers, but I do. So I also have a service that you can push a button and it goes directly to their voicemail. So it doesn't bother them because I hate when people send me recorded calls that are live, but it goes directly to their voicemail and it's just my voice saying, Hey, I'm sorry, I missed you. You know, so we kind of do a combination of all of that. That's cool. I love how you're using all these different systems to make your real estate business really flourish. Yes. So let's go back to lease options. You mentioned that quite a few times in this podcast and you say that's just your new, I guess your new way of doing deals. Do you want to explain what a lease option is and how does it work for you guys? Yeah. So I've been doing lease options for a long time, but the old way was I would buy the property and collect some money up front from somebody that couldn't get a real mortgage, but wanted to own a home. And it was a lease with option to purchase. And so it would really tie me up on having to just sell to them as long as they made payments to me. And then I'd get an upfront amount of 10, 20,000. So it's one up on rentals because now you're getting a pretty significant upfront amount of money. They're responsible for maintaining the house because now they own it but the title still stays in your name until they're able to purchase it. And that's all according to a contract. That's a good old fashioned lease option. Sandwich lease option is, I'm going to give you an example. There was a lady I saw recently and she was in her mid to eight, late seventies. And she was married in June to a veteran. They bought a house together and she got a really good VA loan, quote unquote, good, a hundred percent financing. And then guess what happened? He passed like in July, one month after they bought this beautiful home. Now she's stuck with this house with this really large payment that she can't afford. 
So someone like me can come along and offer her this option. I can take over your payments. You can move and take your money and find a more reasonable place to live. I will find someone to live here. I will be taking money for it. And in about a year, you're going to get full price on your house or two or whatever it is. But right now she couldn't sell it because by the time she does realtor fees and everything else, she just can't sell it. So I could help her by freeing her up from that stress and worry of the mortgage and property taxes and insurance. Somebody else gets an option to buy a new home that they couldn't do. And then now we're doing one more thing. I work with John Jackson on this. If anybody wants to know, um, I've been, and that's who I was just in Houston with him and I are kind of going on the road. We're going to be in Silicon Valley at Realty 411's event on April 4th. John and I talking about this, if anybody wants to come. Linda Polygas runs it. I've known her for a long time. So what I was going to say is for the buying side, we don't just say, oh, give me your money and make the payment and good luck. We actually help them by setting a game plan. We run their credit and their background and look at their stuff with them. We meaning the expert mortgage experts and come up with how many years, year, what it's going to take to get your credit rating to the place where you can get a loan and buy this house. And so we set a plan with them. We create success. So it's not like I'm just taking their money and then if they don't make it, then they leave, right? That's not good for them. It's good for me. I can get another 10 or 20 from another person doing the same thing. They don't get their money back. So I don't want that. So we set it up to create success so that everybody wins. And then there's even an assignment version of that. If someone just getting started in the lease options, wanted to know more about this, you can just send them to TamaraAragon.com and they can do the contact page and just say, send me about, I have a webinar I did with John. It's not even public. I'll just send them the webinar and they could decide if they wanted to get better coaching on lease options. Cool. And I'm assuming you guys give them the whole contracts and everything, right? Because I know that lease options are hard. He has contracts for every state in the United States. Cool. And Texas is where he lives and there, everybody thinks it's illegal. It's kind of like I did. I'm like, great. Think it's illegal. <laughs> it's not illegal. It's not illegal anywhere. And how are you finding buyers for your lease options? I reach out to for sale by owners, but now I'm going to add another element to that. You go after expired listings because a lot of times what's great about lease options is they fit where my flips don't because flips, you need to be discounted and maybe you want a rehab property. It's complete opposite for lease options. You want a property you don't have to fix up. You're not going to put money into it. And it's okay if they're asking top dollar, you don't have to offer them a discount price. They just have to be at market price. That's it. So it's great because a lot of times I get calls. Yeah, give me an offer. You know, I don't care. And then, oh no. And then they say they want, and they want the full price. Well, as a flipper, you can't pay, you can't do that. I'm sorry. You know, Hey, just you better list it then. It's not, you know, it's not really an investment thing, but now you can say to somebody, well, what if you continue to market it, whatever you're doing, Mr. Seller, you're on Zillow now, continue to do what you do. But what if I sent you an opportunity to where, what if I could bring you a full price and you can collect monthly payments and maybe I'll give you your full price in about a year or two. Would that be interesting to you? See, they don't have to stop marketing until I bring a buyer. They could be listed on MLS. They could be on Zillow. And I like that. I like that there's not this humongous commitment to me. All I'm asking is, would you consider? And then when I bring them the numbers at that point, they've been on the market for, you know, six months or something. It was when I'm usually talking to them. So they're a little more open to an idea. And then where do you find the buyer to actually purchase the property as a lease option? 
We have leasingtobuy.com that actually aggregates out. Our students get to go on that site with their properties. You can put them on Craigslist and Zillow, rent to own. Got it. Cool. Because some people, let's say like an entrepreneur like yourself, maybe, I don't know, doesn't really have a W-2 income, doesn't have a lot to show that mortgage lenders don't like. So it's got to be somebody who's getting an income, but they're not quite ready to get a loan yet. Yeah, makes sense. They don't qualify for the traditional methods of purchasing a house. So this really works for them. Right. But they want the ownership and they and what happens, this is really positive. Generally, like our market's still going to go up this year, according to everybody's predictions. It's not like we're going down or flattening and maybe three, four percent still here. So they get in on the price, too, from wherever they're at. Mm, nice. So it seems like you have a lot of things going on. And I remember you also have something called Locator Gold. Do you want to tell us what that is and how it works? Yeah. So it's a, somebody goes to locatorgold.com. There's like a 20 minute little video that explains about finding FISBOs and making money. And a lot of people are nervous about, you know, don't want to write a contract and do the whole thing, but they like to make money on doing something from home where they don't have to have that risk and such. So Locator Gold allows them to follow my direction in that system and plug in addresses for properties they find that are for sale by owner, whether it's from a street sign, whether it's from, you know, online, we give them some ideas for where they can find those things. And then I have investors from all over metropolitan areas, all over the United States. A lot of times people try to put in stuff that are rural. It's not going to work. Okay. Don't even, (laughs) it's not a, it's got to be a desirable property and investors going to want. So they find the property, they have to make a call to the seller to verify it's still for sale. And then they plug in the information and that gets out there to my investors that have signed a confidentiality agreement. And I do follow up, by the way, on any leads that go out there. They're not given a specific address until I know they're interested based on the information. So I know who's looking. So yeah, it's just, but it's very systematic. I know it sounds like all complicated. Everything I have is in a system. And the one thing that's not in a system is my VA who Marcella actually, she's been with me for a very long time, who calls each individual seller that's submitted to verify it's a valid deal before we send it to investors. Yeah. So essentially what it is, it's like a crowdsourced way to find FISBOs or properties on sale that aren't on the MLS. Well, it's actually to make money at it. We pay you $1,000 if we end up buying the property. So you get to make $1,000 before I even sell it. Like if I buy a property, I have to pay the money. I don't get to make any money until I sell it. The person putting the property into locator gold gets to make a thousand dollars if I just buy it. Oh, wow. So is a point of locator gold for you to purchase a property or for you to outsource those to your investor pool? So any of my investors, when I say I, it's I because it's my company. Got it. Any of the investors. Now I might make more money on them doing something else with them. That's between me and them. But the people, anybody in my investor pool that buys a property, which is a large number of people, I am over a thousand now that are in there. Then the people that put the property in, the the student who put the property in gets paid a thousand dollars when that property is purchased. So there's a lot of elements on that. It's for someone that's not, you know, kind of just wants to learn a little bit and not really ready, ready to deep dive. And truthfully, they could use the leads from my lead finder in that system. It's a web scraper to do whatever they want with the leads. I mean, if you were, were really an investor and wanted to do that. In fact, I can give you a little taste of it. I didn't give you this link before, but it's cheaphousefinder.today. It's kind of off the beaten path. So this is like your little sneaky. You get to share it with just your peeps cheap house today will let that let you kind of play around with this web scraper nice 
Sounds like a lot of fun. I'll definitely check it out after this episode records. Cool. So do you have any last tips for our listeners before we end the show today? That's a really broad question. Well, let's say you're starting as a real estate investor, brand new, and let's say you have the same tenacity that you do. 11 months of perseverance. Yes. Get a coach. Find someone that you know. And if you don't have a lot of money, go to Unria. Find somebody who's doing deals. See if you can bring them some deals and follow them around. Do some work for them. I mean, if you don't have the money to pay for a coach, someone like John Jackson for lease options or somebody who really knows what they're doing. We're not cheap. But if there is somebody, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense to go out there and just try to figure things out. And yeah, become part of RIAs. Get out there. Get in your market. Find out what's going on. And then ignore the naysayers when you do that. Because there's the reason why I hesitate on encouraging people to go to RIAs because there's a lot of naysayers. Oh, there's so much competition. Oh, the market's going down. Oh, this or that. It's always going to be something. And you just ignore it. And you just keep going. Perfect. And how can people get in contact with you? You can go to TamaraAragon.com and there's a contact page and there's a phone number there if you want to call my office and yeah, easy. Perfect. All right, Tamara, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything that you've taught us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Cool. All right. Thank you. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. There are a lot of ways to make money with real estate. Buy and hold is great, but you can probably make more money with flipping. Think about how long it'll take you to make that $20,000 or $30,000 profit from a flip if you're making it just $100 a month with a buy and hold. Lease options are also great because you can get passive income from a home buyer who doesn't qualify for a traditional mortgage. But unlike a regular tenant, they won't call you to fix a toilet or do any maintenance work because they basically own the building themselves. And when you're flipping a home, you need to have alternative exit strategies. For example, if any of Tamara's properties can't sell, then she can just hold on to them as rentals. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.